the detective, and the tapes. Do you use the word nigger in describing people? They swayed a verdict. Not guilty of the crime of murder. And divided our country. So, what else was on those tapes? And I put my hood on and I'm calling a tribunal. Now, a CNN exclusive. And if I go down, they lose the tape. Excerpts from the Mark Furman tapes you've never heard. They're lesbians or they're so dykeish that they're not women anymore. And the woman who recorded him. The thought of a kill party just takes your breath away. Laura Hart McKinney tells all. What was it you couldn't say then that you can tell me now? Tonight, after OJ, the Furman tapes revealed. We are now practically into the third day of this major riot in Los Angeles. Flames are now jumping about 25 feet into the air. In the a city tortured by a history of racial rage. Firemen attempting to get in and fight the blaze were held off by rioters. In 1965, racist white cops ignited the Watts riots. A massive combined National Guard and police sweep is underway to bring peace and order. By the late 80s, allegations of excessive use of force had escalated racial tensions. Rappers like N.W.A. made clear black neighborhoods were ready to blow. Then, in 1991, there was this, a grainy video of four white cops beating Rodney King. When the LAPD officers were exonerated in 1992, the city exploded. Then, just two years later... This is a horrendous crime. We have two people dead at the scene. Two people brutally murdered, Nicole Brown and Ron Goldman. And the main suspect, Nicole's ex-husband, football legend O.J. Simpson. Mr. Simpson, you are charged with the crime of murder. How do you plead? Absolutely 100% not guilty. There was a wealth of forensic evidence, from drops of blood, to shoe prints, to a bloody glove. Mark Furman was a detective in the investigation and would play a pivotal role at the trial. Do you use the word nigger? And it was a trial that from the start was clearly about race in a city with a deep history of racial turmoil. And you say on your oath that you have not addressed any black person as a nigger or spoken about black people as niggers in the past 10 years, Detective Furman. That's what I'm saying, sir. When you are watching the trial and you see this and you know what you've got on those tapes, how did you react? What were you thinking? I just laughed. I couldn't believe it. I just went, you've got to be kidding me. Why would he say that? She is Laura Hart McKinney, the writer who recorded conversations with Mark Furman. Anything out of a nigger's mouth for the first five or six senses is a lie. And she has remained mostly silent until now. Why have you decided to come forward now and talk to us? I trust you. Does it feel good to talk about this? Yes. It's time. All right, Ms. McKinney, would you come forward, please? There were bits of the puzzle that just I was unable to reveal. 
uh, at the time, and I was unable to uh, be as truthful as I as I really wanted to be. So she is telling her story, her truth, and for the first time, excerpts from the Furman tapes you've never heard. Vulgar. The white steam shuttle fight for June for the wandering Jew. The plow said a big nose. Sexist. How do you arrest a violent suspect? I yell out, have a man do it. Disturbing. You've got to be a borderline sociopath. You've got to be violent. Violent. Five years ago, I would have just spun around and choked him out. I would have kept choking him out until he told me the truth. Obviously, he's lying the first two times he goes out. So after that, you usually get the truth. It's called the 77 flight detector test. So if you use that, you get a lot of laughs from a lot of policemen. <laughs> what, the 77 flight detector? Yeah. Like in the locker room, a bunch of policemen, like some new kid, you know, goes, why don't you give a 77 flight detector test? You know, just everybody, a bunch of guys will laugh old timers, you know. And even one tape made just months before he would testify in the O.J. Simpson murder trial. Even before the trial started, he knew how important he was to this case. Right. He knew exactly how important he was. Yet he lied on the stand. I have no idea why. In 1985, McKinney met Mark Furman in Los Angeles, 10 years before the O.J. Simpson trial. What's it like to be back here? This is a, an odd feeling, very odd feeling. It all began here at what was then Alice's restaurant. I was sitting outside working on my laptop and he said, oh, what are you doing? And he was dressed in regular clothes and he sat down across from me and I thought, well, he's a seems like a nice person and certainly a nice looking man. So he started asking questions and he said, well, what are you writing? She told Furman she was writing about a woman cop. His response surprised her. He just sort of stopped and said, a woman cop? And I said, yeah. He said, you're never going to find a woman cop who's a good cop. You're never going to find a competent woman cop. I think that's more accurate. And I thought, whoa. How did the conversation unfold to where you realize, hmm, this guy could help me with what I'm working yeah, on. Yeah, then he I asked him, I said, why would you even say that? And he said, well, I'm a, I work with them, and they're, they're incompetent. They don't do this, they don't do that. They're unable to you know, hold a gun. They're not trustworthy. They are utterly incompetent, and they're dangerous. Exactly what McKinney needed to write her screenplay about misogyny in the Los Angeles Police Department. Their natural response is sweat. Sweat, pipe, yell, scream. But before the recordings, there was a relationship. First of all, we had a brief encounter. What do you mean by brief encounter? Well, we had a romance. So it started out as a romance before you started well, doing the tape? Yes, yeah, it did. I would say it did. The taping began when their romantic relationship ended. Everybody's got little names. I mean, if somebody thinks enough of you, they'll come up with some type of a name. The nicknames that Furman gave these women are pretty harsh. We give all the females names. Like this real ugly one, it's called Critter. 
and this other one we call her Pinch uh, Monkey, like in the Wizard of Oz. She looks just like one of those monkeys they sent out of the castle. Can I use all those? Sure. Use critters. That's good. What were you thinking when he was saying those things? Bingo. Bingo. I feel that often when I'm working on. There'll be a bingo moment, or I'll get chills. And when I get chills, I can help somebody else get chills. But Laura Hart McKinney would get much more than chills and a dramatic screenplay. You've got to be able to shoot people, beat people beyond recognition, and go home and hug your little kids. You don't, you don't pack those qualities. Her 12 tapes would become a racial powder keg. The defense will question screenwriter Laura Hart McKinney about interviews she taped with Furman. Exposing alleged hatred. Being a Nazi is not too popular, but I guarantee every Hitler's birthday, there's a celebration behind closed doors. Impacting the trial of the century. Do you use the word nigger? Defense says those tapes will show Furman is a liar and a racist who was capable of planting the bloody glove. And revealing a secret sexist society inside the LAPD. When we come back, on the beat with Mark Furman. He threatened me and he said, I'll take you and any other females that you want to bring and I'll choke you all out in a minute. Making it in Hollywood was screenwriter Laura Hart McKinney's dream. And she knew exactly what her movie should be about. So your goal was to write a screenplay about sexism within the LAPD. Why? I hate it when people are cruel to each other. And thought, it's got to be happening not just here, it's got to be happening around the country. And it was sure happening in LA in the 1980s with resentment and retaliation against a campaign to recruit more women and minorities to the LAPD. I could tell that there was a story there. I didn't know what the story was, but I was determined to, um, to deal with it. And her man on the inside, Officer Mark Furman, had plenty to say on the subject. The worst male officer has a, that adrenaline, that that ability to attack. Not the women don't. It's a very uncomfortable Their natural response is sweat. Sweat, hide, yell, scream, hide, corn. That is really their natural response. And I don't think that's a slam to women. Considering, you know, that I don't think we've evolved a hell of a lot in 30,000 years. You know, we're supposed to strike it and they're supposed to chew the leather. Furman clearly had no respect for women cops. Guys got a lot of time on the street. Now they're studying. They didn't want to be detectives, but now they see the writing on the wall. Either they get off the street or they're going to have some split dale for a partner. A split dale for a partner. Did you even realize at the time that was such a vulgar name for a woman? No, I didn't even know what a split tale was. You know, I thought, okay, I really need to step up my game here. I really need to work hard with these women at the police academy, shadowing them so that I'm clear and I represent their voices. We were trained with this gun and, and how to load it. Voices like Tia Morris. You know, with every rank on the department up through captain. 
1983, she was new to the force and ready to protect and serve in West LA. At roll call, rookie officers like Morris sat up front. The tenured officers like Furman, he and, and a lot of the other older officers would sit in the back and they'd throw paper at us or um, pencils or they'd make, you know, loud and vulgar comments if the, if the watch commander read our name and they'd say, oh, she's a pig and things like that. Nobody stood up and said, hey, this is wrong. Come no. on, back down. When you found out you had to work the beat with him, what was your reaction? What were you thinking? I was... I was scared. I was scared only because of him standing up in front of all of our peers and in front of the watch commander and other supervisors and he flat out said, I do not want to work with Morris. From the moment he stepped out of roll call, he was angry. How did he treat you that night? The whole night he threatened me and he basically challenged me to fight. And he said, I'll take you and any other females that you want to bring up to the academy and I'll choke you all out in a minute because you, you're not even strong. You can't handle a man. Then, Morris says, came a high-priority call, burglary in progress. He wouldn't get out of the car, and so I'd have to approach the scene by myself. So he made you get out at the scene, and he didn't back you up. He wasn't going to help you. Oh, no, he sat in the car. He shined his light and just sat there. He didn't get out. It's like a man and wife relationship, you know? When it comes down to somebody's got to make a decision, it's the man. That's the way it is in the car. What if somebody would have come towards you? Oh, he'd have been happy. You. He'd have been happy because then he could have allowed me to get hurt and that would have been right up his alley. Morris says she was so scared she didn't even finish her shift that night. But Furman wasn't the only one with this attitude toward women. There was a covert club. They called themselves Ma, Men Against Women meeting here at Stoner Park in the dead of night. So when he first told you about Men Against Women, Ma, what was your reaction? I couldn't believe it. I just couldn't believe it. I said, you, guys, you mean you guys actually go to the park after work and just just uh, drink beer and denigrate women? women. <laughs> he said, yeah, that's what we do. Standing around in a dark parking lot at a baseball diamond drinking beer at 3.30 in the morning. I spent time here when I was writing, thinking about what it would be like for the mall guys to be here. Furman even described disciplining one of their own. So Furman and the guys would hold these late night meetings mm -hmm. here, these tribunals, right. and figure out how they were going to harass other male officers that were being nice to female officers. Who had helped them in some way, who had maybe uh, not reported something in a report that those officers felt they should have or had done something nice for them, had backed them up. And I put my hood on and I'm calling a tribunal and we get in a circle. Coming up, tribunals and kill parties. Uh, just the, the thought of a kill party just takes your breath away. By day, a ball field. By night, an imaginary courtroom. And I put my hood on and I'm calling a tribunal. And we get in a circle. 
Mike, you're the prosecutor. Sergeant Arms, stand by the defendant. Your charges are as follows. Mark Furman role-playing as the, quote, Grand Dragon, leading what he describes as a tribunal, calling out a fellow officer for fraternizing with a female cop. And then I go, does anybody have any evidence to produce? Well, on 2.25, I observed the defendant not only kiss, but touch on the ass one of the female officers. He go, I did not. Silence. Sergeant Arms silent him. I mean, it's it's really, it's a lot of fun, but you blow off a lot of steam. And it makes guys aware. Seemingly makes guys aware that if they are nice to female officers, there will be consequences. That's how Ma, Men Against Women, reportedly worked. We have factions of Mao in five divisions. What was a typical outcome of these mock trials, these tribunals? Depending upon the crime committed, um, the uh, Grand Dragon would determine what the ostracization would be. So it could be anything from a few days to a week to a month to whatever that the other guys wouldn't talk with him. However, there was, as Furman describes, a way to avoid being, quote, put on trial. This is publicly humiliate a female officer in front of a bunch of male officers. Tia Morris says she had to work with the men of Ma. So when you heard about men against women and this group of guys making it their mission to intimidate and harass women, did you believe it? I didn't. But then I really saw how serious Mark Furman was about the other men talking to the women, especially the male whites. If they came up to me and spoke or or anything like that, Mark Furman would actually walk up to them and say, what are you doing? Talk to her. And they would back away. Men Against Women wasn't only about denigrating females. Furman, who declined our request for an on-camera interview, also told screenwriter Laura Hart McKinney that Ma held what he called kill parties, celebrations she found unimaginable. The thought of a kill party just takes your breath away. When there was an officer involved shooting, some officers from the Ma group would celebrate it. The thought of taking someone's life and being happy that it wasn't you and finding a way to, to go, hey, great job. That was a hell of a hell of an evening. It's just overwhelming. It really is the, uh, the idea of a kill party. Tribunals, kill parties, Equally disturbing is that Mark Furman stayed on the job despite allegations of his sexism, racism. He told me I needed to go and dance on Soul Train. And internal investigations. In 1985, 10 years before the O.J. Simpson trial, Tia Morris testified before an administrative board about the behavior of Mark Furman and other officers. It happened because of the lieutenant that noticed that the issues were spilling over to another watch and he talked to us then and he told us what he had observed and what he had been hearing about the men against women and WASP, the white Anglo-Saxon police. He did specify that he knew that it was stemming from Furman and he told us that he was going to start an investigation and he did. Furman and others were not formally punished, but Furman's reputation took a hit. So then Mark Furman, 
comes up for promotion and you look him in the eye and say, say no. Bernard Parks was an LAPD deputy chief when Furman came up for promotion. A person's background had to be as sterling as possible. I made a point to always take a, a moment and look at somebody's background and not give them an opportunity to put the department in a bad light. So you knew he would put the department in a bad light? My view was you didn't want to take the chance. One year after Furman was passed over for a promotion, Parks had to set up another task force. We set up the task force because in the early 90s, almost the same things were happening at West LA that were happening in the 80s. And that you heard these rumors about women being mistreated and women not being given an opportunity. One member of that task force, Tia Morris. It was amazing to me because for one, I'm sitting there thinking, here I went through this in the 80s, and after reading some of these reports, I'm saying the department knew about a lot of this stuff. They knew about how he was, and nobody did anything. So being on this task force, you were privy to internal reports, and Mark Furman was mentioned in a number of these. Yes. We were privy to all of his um, past investigations and a stress claim that he filed where he talked about how he hated blacks and Hispanics and women. And he was blaming the department for his stress because of those issues that he had. This time, the investigation resulted in officers being reassigned, including Mark Furman. A fateful move with consequences that no one could have imagined. Coming up, Mark Furman's behavior would no longer be just an internal problem. The whole world would watch him implode. By 1995, Laura Hart McKinney had settled down with her family in suburban North Carolina. But back in LA, her old friend Mark Furman was on the stand. And you say on your oath that you have not addressed any black person as a nigger or spoken about black people as niggers in the past 10 years, Detective Furman. That's what I'm saying, sir. As F. Lee Bailey was grilling Furman, nobody in that courtroom knew about Laura Hart McKinney's tapes except for her and a few close allies. Then came the one phone call that changed everything. I picked up the phone. He said, uh, may I speak with Laura Hart McKinney? I said, this is she, but I didn't recognize the voice. And then he said, this is Pat McKenna. McKenna was a private investigator working for O.J. Simpson's lawyers, assigned to find anything that would support the defense's strategy, that Mark Furman was a racist who planted evidence. He asked me if I was writing a story and if I, in that story, I had research tapes and if uh, on those research tapes that I had taped Mark Furman. And your thought was? I just froze and said yes. And then we left town immediately, because I had no idea what to do. Including what to do about some unexpected advice. 
who suggested that you destroy the tapes? A judge who was an acquaintance of mine in LA. Wow, did that surprise you? Yes. So did she want to protect Mark Furman? I'm thinking that she wanted to protect the integrity of the trial. What did you say to her? I was flummoxed. I, why? Did she why see the writing on the wall? Was she afraid that potentially a murderer could walk free because of what these tapes represented? She didn't know what was on the tapes, but her point was uh, when I said, well, the tapes are confidential, and she said, it's a murder trial, nothing is confidential. And if the defense were to find out about these tapes, they would subpoena you and your tapes and your life would change forever. And that's exactly what happened. When McKinney refused to hand over the tapes, Simpson's lawyers came to North Carolina and took her to court. And, and Mark Furman's still a friend of yours, isn't that correct? He's a business partner. He's a bu I have a business relationship with him. And you're still trying to uh, market this particular play or screenplay? My agent has my work. Mark. I was completely unprepared to be in a courtroom. I was extremely nervous. This material is collateral, and I will ex uh, deny the subpoena. I think it's an outrageous ruling, and we're going to appeal. I mean, you heard the evidence in there. This is a this is bombshell evidence, and it's absolutely critical. It's relevant. It's germane. It's material. You won. You didn't have to give up the tapes. Yes, I was very pleased that we won, and thought, okay, that's the end of it. Great. And then you lost on appeal. Right. And then you thought, well, I thought I'm going to have to send the tapes. So did Mark Furman call you and say, Laura, please don't give up those tapes? He requested that I not give up the tapes. What did you tell him, Laura? No, that I had to give them up. Did you feel a need to protect him? No. He's very capable of protecting himself. As for McKinney, she could no longer protect the tapes or her privacy. So who told Pat McKenna you had these tapes? That I don't know. That person has never been revealed to me. Still a mystery? Still a mystery, I don't know. So to this day, you don't know who gave you up, basically, no, to the I defense? No, I don't know who, who called. Did you stop and think about what you should next do? Coming up, O.J. Simpson charged with murder and Mark Furman still taping. More from the infamous tapes you've never heard. Good afternoon, Ms. McKinney. Good afternoon, Mr. Cochran. Over the 10 year period that we've been Johnny Cochran had everything he wanted. Laura Hart McKinney, her tapes, and recordings of Mark Furman saying the N-word. And in the course of your preparation of your testimony here today, can you tell the jury how many times you've counted that he used that word? Approximately 42. 42 times? Yes. How did you stomach listening to that over and over again? Those comments that he used made me feel repulsed. 
but also it lit a fire under me. It's despicable. The fact that he can think about that and talk like that makes me think it's happening. And so I have to find a way to, to reflect that. So it just empowered you. It just pissed me off. And it made her a crucial player in the trial of the century. She could have profited handsomely from those tapes, but she didn't. I would never do that. I would never have sold the tapes. Is it true you were offered $250,000 for them? I, I was. So then why didn't you sell them? No one, sh from my perspective, me, talking about me, should be profiting from this tragedy that people have to live with every day of their life. Ms. McKinney, what is your occupation? But McKinney was still thrust into the spotlight, and that meant anxiety and fear. I remember you got a lot of death threats. A lot of people were angry with you. They didn't understand why these tapes had to come about. Right. Did you feel safe during all of that? No, I was extremely scared. In the matter of the people of the state of California versus Orenthal James Simpson. The verdict didn't make her feel any safer. We, the jury, in the above entitled action, find the defendant, Orenthal James Simpson, not guilty of the crime of murder in violation of penal code section. What was your reaction to the verdict when O.J. Simpson was found not guilty? I didn't go out of the house for a while. Really? Yes. Why? There was the, the reality that maybe the tapes had had something to do with the jury's verdict. And because of that, I would be a persona non grata in many people's eyes. Mark Furman was certainly persona non grata, exposed as a liar and forced to go silent. Detective Furman, did you plant or manufacture any evidence in this case? I assert my Fifth Amendment privilege. But his silence would not protect him. His voice on those tapes could not be erased. Excerpts you are now hearing for the very first time. You gotta be a borderline sociopath. You gotta be violent. You have to walk away from blood and go to dinner. You gotta be able to shoot people, beat people beyond recognition, and go home and hug your little kids. You don't, you don't pack those qualities. Because almost no women do, and if they do, they're either so ugly, or they, they're lesbians, or they're so dykeish that they're not women anymore. They're like caught in between. It's like half in a door and half out. You know, they're like caught between dimensions. They're just, there's just no way to, to do it all. Stories of alleged sexism, racism, and police brutality. McKinney's tapes would impact more than just the O.J. Simpson trial. They would impugn the integrity of the LAPD. When you heard those tape recordings for the first time, what did you think? It was a belly punch at the wrong time. And, and, you, and you go, how could this have happened to us? You know, how did we even let them stay on the job? Bayon Lewis was an LAPD assistant chief when a task force investigated everything Furman said on those tapes. Why had he been allowed to behave 
the way he did for so long and not be held accountable? Because the command staff that was in charge of him did not do the job that they should have done, which is to deal with the issue in a, in a strong manner. So it was kind of just shunted off to the side, boys will be boys. We needed to tell the organization that if you even claim to uh, be engaged in this kind of behavior, we will investigate it and let chips fall where they may. And secondly, if there was criminal behavior and it was within statute, then we would take it to the district attorney and we could file on it. In 1997, the task force released this report, keeping secret portions of the tapes, excerpts not played in court and never made public until now. This is the confidential personnel version of that report. It reveals more of Furman's disturbing recordings. Quote, grabbed her by the hair and stuck a gun to her head, held her like this, threw the bitch down the stairs. And quote, I'd pick up three or four gang members, bring them to the station, take one in the basement, and just beat the dog shit out of them. Hundreds of interviews were conducted, and nearly one quarter of a million documents were reviewed. In the end, the task force confirmed 12 of 29 events described by Furman, but concluded he embellished a lot, that just about everything he told McKinney was bigger, bloodier, and more violent than the actual events, with one exception, Ma, men against women. Did you ever at any point feel like, I need to report what he's saying? This is dangerous. No, no, I didn't. And I really believe that if I could tell this story in a way that was uh, honest and fair with a strong narrative that I could help inform people. Furman's words would inspire McKinney's writing for decades. Mark Furman told you that personally he felt trapped. What did he mean by that? He was trying to articulate the depth of his soul. There was something with his own identity that was connected to being a police officer. And so much of it was being besmirched by having to work with women that if he'd been in a different time in history, he would have been more appreciated, more respected, more openly respected by some people. Next, Furman worries more about the movie than the murder. They're going to show that I fired a glove to be able to, to sell the pedal. Yeah, 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 which is absolutely psycho. And whatever happened to McKinney's screenplay? It was 1994. Ron Goldman and Nicole Brown were dead, and her ex-husband, O.J. Simpson, was charged with the murders. So a month and a half after the murders, Furman tells you this. My house is on the line because if the media gets a hold of this, although we can say, well, we're going to negotiate for years, months, whatever, yeah. they're going to show that I tired of well to be able to, to sell to this. Yeah. 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 Which is absolutely psycho. Mark Furman was still getting together with you and recording these tapes 
after the murders had happened. Did you find that odd at all that he was okay being recorded talking about this? No. No, because he liked to talk about his thoughts and his feelings. Stunning to hear now, but not really surprising when looking back on a man known to be cocky. Do you use the word nigger? Who lied on the stand. No, sir. The court finds the defendant guilty based on his plea of no contest. And pled no contest to perjury. But in his 1997 book, Murder in Brentwood, Furman apologized, writing, in my heart, I always knew it was wrong, even if I said them only to create a fictional story. My first failure was the lure of greed, and the second was my lack of compassion. I'm not a racist. Furman also went on an apology tour, visiting Diane Sawyer, Oprah, and Larry King. I thought I knew better, being a policeman, how to make the most uh, controversial, outrageous, violent, uh, um, controversially crammed police show that we could we could make, and I, I was wrong. Uh, I didn't know what I was doing. One thing Furman has said is, eh, at times maybe I got a little carried away talking to Laura. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard that before, but what's your reaction to that? He said those things, so he believed them, but I don't think he got carried away. I really don't. I think he was being truthful. Today, no longer a screenplay consultant or a cop, Furman, who declined to be interviewed for this program, is an author. It's not profiling to look for a suspect that's And TV crime analyst. As for Laura Hart McKinney. Screenwriting is such an emotional journey. We have to be willing to be vulnerable. She teaches screenwriting at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. Pitching some stories. And that screenplay she developed with Mark Furman's help, it never became a movie. Missouri scum, we should not be allowed in our venerable police men against police women brotherhood. It became a book. Because he violated all of our principles by talking to a female officer, touching a female officer, and he glanced at the notepad and pounded his heart, oh God kissing one female officer on duty in uniform and embarrassing us all. It's fiction, and the title? The same as Furman's real-life secret society, Men Against Women. Was completing this book therapeutic for you after all these decades? Yes. Publishing the book was therapeutic, but disclosing the tapes? Still painful. For more than 20 years, you were the woman with the tapes that changed the face of this trial. What has that been like for you? It hasn't been good, I will say. Uh, that, that part hasn't been good. I felt that ashamed would be wrong, but I have felt bad that the revelation of the tapes could have actually had something to do with the verdict. James Simpson, not guilty of the crime of murder in violation of penal Could have actually helped to make a guilty man go free. Is this your verdict? So say you won, so say you all. But those tapes. We have all the females names. But this real ugly one is called Critter. Have also done exactly what McKinney started out to do. 
Chief Willie Williams proposed sweeping changes in how his department handles sexual harassment. It doesn't happen under my watch, period. Are you glad that Laura recorded Mark Furman? Absolutely. You know, it, it was horrible for us because it had a huge impact on the O.J. Simpson trial. And it made us look absolutely horrible within our minority community. Down on your knees! They said, look, we've been saying all along that you use the N-word, that you lie. And it, it took years after this to deal with it. And I put my hood on and I'm calling a tribunal. And we get in a circle. We will be doing a reorganization of the department and it will serve the best interest of the duties of this department and the citizens of Los Angeles. Are you glad Laura recorded Mark Furman? I'm very pleased. Most things that hard lessons are things that thrust upon you when you don't ask for them and you have to react to them. And I think everybody's better for it. You're trying to find a bruise on a nigger? Pretty tough, huh? I think those tapes spoke volumes. The revelation was priceless. Decades later, are you glad you didn't destroy those tapes? Yes. Why? I have three sons. I would have a very hard time today sitting here thinking of uh, my sons and telling them that I destroyed uh, something that I was proud that I had done. We haven't had a tribunal in five months. Why would he want to keep talking to you for so many years? Did he ever say why? He wanted to be infamous. He That's said. what he said. He said that. All right. But infamous is very different from famous. So he said, no, I want to be infamous. Well, he became infamous. He did. <laughs>